Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Asset Allocation Weekly Report for September 24th, 2021. The question we're hearing everywhere about inflation these days is, is it transitory? Or to put it another way, should we worry that the inflation we're experiencing today will last even when the pandemic diminishes as we hope it will? I'm Phil Adler, joining me is Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. Bill, I've been reading your comments closely, and to me, you're sounding less certain lately that inflation will be transitory. Now, am I am I reading you correctly? Well, you, you are correct. Transitory is hard to define, but I'm beginning to fear that the pandemic has revealed and accelerated changes to the economy that will make it more difficult to keep inflation around 2%. We have discussed the exodus of older workers in previous podcasts, something that was bound to happen but was accelerated by the pandemic. The pandemic has revealed the fragility of supply chains that will accelerate the trend towards regionalization. What we will discuss in this week's Asset Allocation Weekly is another facet of how the economy has been reshaped over the past three decades and what it may mean for prices. What we're looking at today, as you mentioned, is a main inflation-fighting strategy that has been in vogue for the past 40 years or, or so, and we're wondering if it might be more difficult to employ this strategy successfully today. And what we're talking about is the supply-side policies prominent during the Reagan administration. Could you explain, Bill, the reasoning behind supply-side and why this approach was effective fighting inflation in the past? In the post-Depression, post-World War II situation, the economy had more productive capacity than it could use. In the period prior to the Great Depression, the United States was similar to China in that it had become an exporting power. When the Depression fractured the global trading system, the U.S. found itself with so much excess productive capacity that deflation looked permanent. World War II put that capacity to good use as the U.S. became the arsenal for the Allies. Economists and policymakers simply assumed that excess capacity problem was permanent and thus focused policy on demand management. Constant deficit spending and military spending were part of the response. So were policies that favored labor. There wasn't a lot of incentive to invest, especially in disruptive technologies, because society wouldn't reward it. So cool technologies, such as mobile phones and computer mice, were developed by computer labs, but they, they didn't see the light of day. By the 1970s, capacity had become constrained again. Demand-side policies under conditions of supply constraint can either allow inflation to occur or contain inflation through recessions. The Reagan-Thatcher revolution, which was really started by Jimmy Carter, led to capacity expansion. It did so by cutting regulation, which allowed new technologies to be easily adopted, and by tax cuts, which encouraged investment and innovation. All those cool technologies have been tied up in corporate labs were unleashed on the economy. Supply increased, and this led to economic expansion with moderate inflation. Why are you concerned that increasing supply to contain inflation might be more difficult to achieve these days? Well, I have two worries. First is the weakening of globalization, and the second is industry concentration. Well, let's start with the first one a trend away from globalization and how it might disrupt supply chains. Where is the supply disruption and the rising prices as a result being manifested most these days? Could you give us some examples? 
Well, the shipping industry, especially container vessels and railroads, have been raising prices at a rapid clip. Both industries have become increasingly concentrated since the great financial crisis. And as the price of imports rise or the fears of supply chains instability rises, it leads to, to two outcomes. First, domestic and regional firms may fill the void, but at higher prices. After all, they were underpriced out of the market previously. And even if supply chains recover, the fear of future disruption may lead to inventory accumulation, and if it becomes the norm, that too leads to higher prices. The situation in semiconductors is, is a good example. Bill, would you say a move toward increased tariffs is a major symptom, and with the move away from globalization, that we should be expecting more uh, tariff building in the future? Well, we're seeing some of it now, but the real fight I think will eventually be over exchange rates. The problem with using tariffs in a floating exchange rate world is that the target of tariffs may simply respond with currency depreciation, offsetting the impact of the tariff. Tariffs will remain a tool, but things like import bans, local content rules, and other regulations will likely become more common. Let's move on to your second concern, the rise of concentrated industries. Talk a little bit more about how this has happened and, and how concentration discourages supply growth that could bring down inflation. My worry is that due to industry concentration, firms may shy away from boosting capacity. In Economics 101, students are taught that under conditions of competition, when extraordinary profits emerge in, in an industry, new entrants enter that industry and supply rises and prices fall. Excess profits are thus competed away. But under conditions of constrained competition, a firm seeing excess profits may simply choose to undersupply the market and continue to capture those large profits. For goods, imports may resolve this shortage, but for services, that simply may not be possible. Now, we could warn that this isn't the only issue surrounding inflation, but it may turn out to be a contributing factor. Which industries are consolidating the fastest? Well, technology has become very concentrated, mostly because its investment is tied to intangibles, which, which tend to foster concentration. We really only have a couple of social media firms, a handful of mobile phone makers, for example. But there are other areas, too. Finance has become more concentrated. In 1987, I worked for the largest bank in Missouri. It had $5 billion in assets. And even taking inflation to an account, that would only be a bank of about $11.4 billion today, which is, is very small by today's standards. Although there are many small banks, there are really only 10 large ones that matter. Transportation is another area. Three container shippers represent 80% of global shipping capacity. In railroads, there are eight Class 1 railroads that service the United States and Canada, and soon there'll be seven due to a new merger. Broadly speaking, a measure of industry concentration, the herfindahl hirschman Index, has indicated that 75% of industries have increased their concentration over the past 20 years. The mood in Washington these days seems to be anti-merger and pro-regulation regarding to breaking up companies. We see it in the technology sector and, and also, as you mentioned, lately in railroads. How powerful is this trend in Washington and is anti-inflation its main stimulus? It's a powerful trend. The key element is there is a growing sense that the Bork standard of antitrust will be reversed back to the old Brandeis standard. Bork argued that the only relevant factor regulators should take into account is the impact on consumers. And so if a merger or the level of concentration doesn't hurt consumers, it should be allowed to happen and leave the company alone. 
The Brandeis standard, on the other hand, says that size alone should determine where antitrust remedies should be applied. What the Bork standard failed to account for, or perhaps simply didn't care, was that his standard would seriously disadvantage labor. The way companies met the Bork standard was by forcing labor to absorb the costs of adjustment. Second, the bigness gives firms political power that may not be in the public interest. Anti-inflation isn't the biggest issue, at least not yet, but as labor costs rise and companies have the market power to simply pass those rising costs on to consumers, regulators may decide it's time to disadvantage capital. The driving force now is probably concerns about labor and, and political power. You worry, Bill, that the longer transitory price levels remain elevated, the more concerned we should be about lasting inflation. Now, when do we approach the the point of no return? Well, the key is inflation expectations. If households and firms expect, let's say, 4% inflation, they will start factoring that into wage negotiations, pricing menus, and, and other things. But there is a good bit of caution to be exercised here. Inflation expectations are tricky. We've seen periods in history where inflation rose steadily and yet expectations didn't accelerate. In periods of serious inflation, there's always an element of currency debasement. In fact, it's arguable that hyperinflation is impossible without debasement. Perhaps the 1970s had more to do with Nixon's decision to leave the gold standard than previously thought. By doing that, Americans lost faith in their money and it took the onslaught of Paul Volcker to convince them otherwise. Bill, our discussion today might Uh, be looked at perhaps as a repudiation of that old theory that history always repeats itself. Would you say that right now we're in a unique period regarding inflation and the lessons of history are limited? Well, speaking as one with a history degree, all periods are unique. As the pre-Platonist Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, you can't step into the same river twice. That doesn't mean history isn't important. By dissecting how current conditions are different and the same can give us insights how the future may unfold, but great care has to be used. Gleaning the right lessons from history is hard. Ideology can blind us uh, to seeing the past in a certain framework where we miss important points. For example, there's a common narrative from the 1970s that monetary policy was too easy and was to blame for, for that period of inflation. And so, in the last decade, when the Fed engaged in quantitative easing, there was a chorus of economists and pundits suggesting there would be a repeat. Of course, they were completely wrong. But it's important to realize why they were wrong. I suspect you needed an event to undermine household and firm confidence in money and lead them to seek other assets to hold their liquidity. A rally in Bitcoin may be reflecting the fear of debasement to some investors, but without that trigger, without that tipping point, it may not be possible to engage in acts thought to be inflationary. It may turn out not to be. Now, one potential trigger would be if the Fed engages in yield curve control. By itself, as Japan has shown, this isn't enough to bring inflation, but coupled with other policies like higher fiscal spending, it just might. But here's the other problem. The last time we faced persistent inflation problems, we cut taxes and we deregulated industry. In the current environment, that may simply lead to increased industry concentration, which won't necessarily address the supply-side situation. In other words, what has worked before fails to work now. If you read contemporary comments from economists in the 1970s, similar refrains can be heard. Bill, it also seems to me that some of these inflation concerns are not directly caused by the pandemic, although the pandemic perhaps sped up the process. Do you agree? 
Very much so. Look, boomers are going to eventually leave the labor force, but the pandemic has clearly accelerated the process. Global supply chains were at risk due to weakening of U.S. hegemony. Again, the pandemic revealed that these chains were unreliable. These factors were already in place, but the pandemic accelerated them. Finally, Bill, what kind of decisions might we anticipate from Confluence Investment Management to properly position investment portfolios if it turns out that inflation will, in fact, be deeper and longer lasting than previously expected? Well, we've been anticipating inflation for some time, which is why we have gold and commodities in all portfolios and the ones with fixed income, we use bond ladders. If we end up with inflation running between 2 to 4% instead of 0 to 2%, we'll likely keep fixed income duration short. On the other hand, a debasement event like what we saw in the 1970s requires a much more aggressive approach, which means more real assets. I personally don't expect that for a while, but watch closely for such an event. An important point is that a trigger that changes inflation expectations isn't necessarily mechanical, but psychological. Thank you, Bill. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. 